morning. Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 22, verses 1 to 15. Whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, the the defender is guilty of bloodshed. Anyone who steals must certainly make restitution. But if they have nothing, they must be sold to pay for their theft. If the stolen animal is found alive in their possession, whether ox or donkey or sheep, they must pay back double. If anyone grazes their livestock in a field or vineyard and lets them stray and they graze in someone else's field, the offender must make restitution from the best of their own field or vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads into thorn bushes so that it burns shocks of grain or standing grain or the whole field, the one who started the fire must make restitution. If anyone gives a neighbour silver or goods for safekeeping and they are stolen from the neighbour's house, the thief, if caught, must pay back double. But if the thief is not found, the owner of the house must appear before the judges And they must determine whether the owner of the house has laid hands on the other person's property. In all cases of illegal possession of an ox, a donkey, a sheep, a garment, or any other lost property about which somebody says, this is mine, both parties are to bring their cases before the judges. The one whom the judges declare guilty must pay back double to the other. If anyone gives a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any other animal to their neighbour for safekeeping and it dies or is injured or is taken away while no one is looking, the issue between them will be settled by the taking of an oath before the Lord that the neighbour did not lay hands on the other person's property. The owner is to accept this and no restitution is required. But if the animal was stolen from the neighbour, Restitution must be made to the owner. If it was torn to pieces by a wild animal, the neighbour shall bring in the remains as evidence and shall not be required to pay for the torn animal. If anyone borrows an animal from their neighbour and it is injured or dies while the owner is not present, they must make restitution. But if the owner is with the animal, the borrower will not have to pay. If the animal was hired, the money paid for the hire covers the loss. And our New Testament reading is from the last section of Paul's letter to Philemon, verses 17 to 25. So, if you consider me a partner, welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. 
Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Thanks, Kathy, and good morning, everybody. You know, it was four weeks ago we started this journey in Philemon together, and I suggested to you that a helpful way to look into it was to consider it like a personal email from Paul written to Philemon, and then there were a bunch of people CC'd and us BCC'd into the email. There, were, there was uh, the church that Philemon's a part of, there's Apphia and Archippus uh, also CC'd in, and then we had this privilege of being beast. They don't know we're reading, but uh, we're also copied in so we can see it as well. And you kind of thought to your mind, why is Paul kind of stacking the deck like this? Is this a manipulative ploy to try and get what he wants? But we came to understand that no, what we are to understand is that when you're bound to Christ, you're bound to his family. And so Paul demonstrated from the very beginning, as you'll see on the screen, that there are all these relationships of people who are bound to Christ together. Can we just bring that? Thank you, Catherine. Uh, who are bound to Christ together and therefore bound to one another. And as we went on, we learned that participation is the path to progress because Paul showed us his relationship with this man Philemon. And his big prayer for Philemon, verse 6, key to the book, or to the lesser, was that he was praying that Philemon, by his participation in fellowship, or this word we learned, koinonia, that that might be instrumental in him coming to understand all the good things we share for the sake of Christ. We continued on and we came to understand that we are to prioritize the primary tie. Paul spoke so lovingly about this man Onesimus. He's my heart, he's my son, he's become so useful to me and I'm sending him away. And we saw that sometimes there's this tension between these wonderful things that will tie us and they're good gifts from God, but there's a primary tie. And Paul understood the primary tie as it's the will of God for this guy, Onesimus, to be returned to Philemon, that through their fellowship and participation in Christ together, they might come to understand every good thing we share in Christ. And so he found himself pulled by the primary tie. This morning as we come to our fourth and final week in Philemon, here's what I would love us to, uh, to take away. And it's this, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now I know that's not catchy. I know you can't set a jingle to it, but it's certainly scriptural because it's the last verse and I simply couldn't improve upon it. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, I wonder if you notice something unusual already as you read that. So often when we're reading the Bible, or particularly reading Paul, he speaks about the Holy Spirit, but here it's not, may God's Spirit be with you. He's talking about Philemon's Spirit. And I think, by implication, our Spirit, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your Spirit. Uh, a quick summary way to put that, I think, may His way be bound to your way. Have you ever thought about what your spirit is? 
I mean, quite literally, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your wind, be with your breath. What's your spirit? I mean, your spirit is your, your, your breath, your life. There's an amazing thing about breathing. It kind of takes what's inside, brings it inside, and then sends it back outside. Right? It comes out, in, and out. And I think maybe what we can understand of this idea of spirits is it's my life and the essence of who I truly am, kind of like your soul, but a little bit different. It's how the essence of who I truly am is now manifest to everybody else. Just like with God, his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is God and searches the deep things of God and reveals to us by God's word who God is, that we might know God. And so your spirit is kind of the essence of who you are revealed to everyone in your animation, in your speech, in your way, in your manner. And what Paul's saying here is, may the grace, that unmerited love and favor that comes from God, may that be with your spirit. May God's loving kindness, favor, unmerited, be bound to who you are and how you will be. And I don't have a better word than that. You see, that's the prayer that Paul is praying at the conclusion of this letter because just before it comes the big ask. The big ask, he's told us all about koinonia fellowship and Philemon, I'm confident that uh, you will act accordingly and all these sorts of things because I'm about to ask you something quite big. And here it is, I'll read it again from verse 17. If you consider me a partner, Philemon, welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me. If he has done any... If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I'll pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Why is it such a big ask? Because this man, Onesimus, who... He is asked, who he's asking Philemon to receive back, they have a relationship that's surely strained. For Onesimus is the slave of Christ Jesus who has taken upon, my apologies, Onesimus is the slave of Philemon who has taken it upon himself to be AWOL. He's missing in action. He's run away. He's separated himself. He's without leave and he's gone. And so there's tension at this point. Moreover, when he comes back, Paul wants to Philemon to receive Onesimus not just as a slave, he'll remain his slave, but to treat him as a brother, to see a primary tie. Now immediately, uh, I suspect for all of us, we see this language of slave. So Philemon's a slave master and Onesimus is a slave and you think, well, geez, Paul, why would you even tell him to go back? In fact, why aren't you going one further and saying, Philemon, how could you have a slave? It's important for us to be able to read this well, that we broaden our concept of what slavery is. Now, most known to us is, of course, that horrible and barbaric concept of slavery that exists today, and the statistics tell me that slavery is more alive today than it ever has been, where people are taken against their will, where they're treated harshly, and where they're owned by another. And the Christian church under people like William Wilberforce were right to press against this and let's continue to do so. But you need to know that slavery is broader than that and there is a biblical model for slavery. We cannot say all slavery is bad because the Bible doesn't say all slavery is bad. There's a model of slavery that is different to this oppression. 
In fact, the kind of slavery that the Bible speaks to is one that will understand that your slave remains God's servant and God's possession and not yours. That they won't be in your service forever. There will come a time of jubilee where you're to release them. That you're not meant to be harsh with them, but care for them. That you're not meant to take advantage of them. You're meant to house them well and they are in some kind of servant relationship with you, and that's the kind of thing that's going on here. In fact, to understand slavery even further in this world context, it's important to understand how someone might have come into slavery. And it's not too uncommon from some of the things that we know and participate in today. Uh, Slavery can be an economic thing that has come about. Sometimes you might have taken out a loan. When you take out a loan, you have to offer collateral. You fail to pay back the loan or default on it, and the collateral you may have offered is yourself and your service. And so you come into someone's service. It's important to understand that this can actually be a kindness. To default on a loan or something like that, someone might have the right to have you thrown in prison. But instead of having you thrown in prison or to deal harshly with you, you might come into their service. And again, they're meant to treat you kindly treat you well, feed you, house you, clothe you, not to be harsh with you, and they don't own you forever. But rather than have you in prison, there is something of a kindness shown that you will come into indentured service. Another way that people can come into slavery in the New Testament times, um, the average age of people in the New Testament time is about 27 years old. And the reason for that is, is when you average out ages, people are living much older, but there is such a high infant mortality rate. One, because we're living in the ancient world, but two, because tragically, sometimes babies who were born were not wanted or able to be sustained by their parents, and so they would be put, they they called it exposing, they would put the baby on a rubbish pile. They'd expose the child and the child would die. Or, someone might come along and say, no, no, we can't have this, and take that child and bring them into their home and into their care for service. And so it was a rescue. Now, if I pause for a moment, just that God might be glorified, what a wonderful thing he's done with us. Surely it would have been enough when we were his enemies. Surely it would have been enough when we were estranged from God and spiritual orphans for God to come pick us up off the pile where we were doomed to die and make us slaves. But he went a step further. Rather than just make us slaves in his household, he adopted us and adopted us to be co-heirs with Christ, co-heirs with the firstborn. What an amazing thing he has done. And so I guess the best possible thing in this time would maybe find a baby adopted. Sometimes that didn't happen. Someone might take the baby and make them an indentured servant or slave in their household. And so I I, I hope that amidst the sensitivity we rightly have of the horrific nature that slavery can be, we can also see that there's a space where this can be an opportunity and a help for somebody. And the Bible doesn't condemn that. In fact, it would be difficult for the Bible to say, now, counsel your slaves, because that would be an injustice economically if someone has a debt to pay. So the Bible's very careful at this point and very sensitive to what's going on, very just and very merciful. So here we have a man with his slave who has run away. 
And his slave who has run away has stolen himself away. And perhaps, perhaps, because Paul says, if he owes you anything, I'll pay it back. Perhaps he's stolen some of Philemon's property as well. So Philemon may have a case on Onesimus' return to say, right, it's into jail with you. I rescued you once and I won't rescue you again. But Paul says, I want you to do something different. You're going to receive him as a brother. And now he goes on to say, so if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you'd welcome me. If you consider me a partner, and here's our favorite word, koinonia, come back. Koinonia meaning partnership or fellowship. Paul says, if you consider me a koinonos, a partner, if you consider me one who is bound to Christ and you're bound to Christ and therefore in Christ we're bound to one another, receive him as he'd receive me. You see, what Paul's trying to do is give Philemon a new way to see Onesimus and he's giving actually us a new way to see one another. Philemon could view Onesimus based on the quality or lack of quality in their relationship. He says, don't do that. The way I want you, Philemon, to see Onesimus is the way you see me. And he doesn't say, if you consider me a friend. He says, if you consider me a koinonos. If you consider me one who you are bound to in Christ and therefore would be hospitable, kind, and brotherly loving to, then surely you'll do the same for Onesimus, who is also a fellow in Christ. Regardless of the relationship we have direct to one another, treat him as you would treat me because we're all in Christ together. Wow. Paul has called Philemon to see and look upon Onesimus in a whole new way. And the way to look on one another in a whole new way is to do it with a new kind of love. And that love is called grace. Philemon, I want you to receive Onesimus like you were receiving me, not just because you like me, not just because we're mates, but because in Christ we are bound together. I want you to receive Onesimus not according to his merit or lack thereof, not according to his status or lack thereof, but I want you to receive him according to the love that God has now stitched in your heart. You're going to love him better than he deserves. Love not because love is owed, but because you're simply willing to pay him love. You're simply willing to give him love. Now Paul says something amazing as he demonstrates grace. He's calling for grace at this point. Justice would call for something different. Paul is calling for grace. You're going to receive him back according to grace. You're going to look on him a different way because of grace. Paul's going to model it first. Listen to these words as Paul gives Philemon a lesson in the grace he learned from the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, if he has done you any wrong, and it seems he has, or owes you anything, and it seems he does, charge it to me. Take his bill that says Onesimus, put a line through it and write Paul. Now that's not fair, but that is grace. Let me pay a bill that's not mine. Let me take an invoice made out to someone else 
and let's put my name on it, Paul says. Let me pay like Christ paid for me. I'm bound to the gracious one. Remember Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, bound to Christ. Where he goes, I go. I don't go where he doesn't go. Well, he goes in grace spaces, so I'm going to go in grace spaces. Put my name on the invoice, Paul says. Verse 19, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Let's be clear, Philemon, this isn't my scribe who said, oh, look, Paul will take care of it. Paul says, no, I signed the check with my own hand. Look, you can see it's my signature. I will pay it back. So what I want you to do is charge his account to me. Know that it's me making this pledge. I will pay it back. Now, here's another bit where you might think Paul's being manipulative. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very own self. We've got a couple of opportunities here to get Paul wrong. When he CC'd everyone into the email, you might have thought he was trying to create a grandstand of people to try and make Philemon do the right thing. No, he wasn't. He was keeping himself accountable and stepping into mutual communal discernments. When he said, I could be bold and command you, but I'm going to appeal out of love, he wasn't saying, don't forget I could tell you what to do. He was saying, look, I'm very confident that you would do the right thing, so it's not a hard thing to just tell you what to do. He's saying, I want you to act according to your heart. He wasn't trying to be manipulative. And here again, let me show you how he's not being manipulative. I'll pay the debts. It's me who makes the pledge. And in case you're still wondering, don't forget you've seen me do it before. This isn't Paul saying, hey, you owe me your life. You owe me something. He's saying, just know my character. Somewhere in our history, I was gracious to you. I'm a gracious dude, I'm making a gracious promise, and I will pay, because that's what Jesus did for me. Not a manipulation, just a demonstration and an assurance that I'll act graciously, and brother, I'm calling you to act graciously too. And so he finishes this letter with these wonderful words, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. Philemon May your spirit, may the way you are with yourself and with others be bound to the way that Christ has been to us. Be gracious with yourself and be gracious to other people as well. That's what I'm calling you to do. And that's why Paul has such confidence. Paul doesn't just want Philemon to do right things. He wants him to have a heart that is bound to Christ's grace that now manifests in gracious action. And that's why he's confident at all these stages that Philemon will do the right thing. That's why he's even able to say, hey, I'm confident. Because again, you could think, confident of your obedience and that you'll do even more. No, he means that sincerely. I'm confident you'll act graciously too. I've asked for this. I reckon in grace you'll do more than any of us deserve and do that. Because I know that you get Jesus. And I've been praying that our participation together in this thing called fellowship might help you understand all the good things we share for the sake of Christ that you would never get on your own. You see, brothers and sisters, when we talk about grace, it's important that we remind ourselves that grace is not consolation love. Sometimes you might read a scripture like our favorite, Ephesians 2, that says, you know, you are saved by grace, not by works. And somewhere, some little part in our heart goes off and says, if only I was good enough to do the works, then God could love me on my merit. But when I failed, he went, oh, you little scamp, don't worry, I'll love you anyway. 
and you think like grace is kind of like the consolation prize when you couldn't get the love that is merited, but you're mistaken in thinking that. It's always been grace for God. It's always been grace. See, love, how I respond and treat and act another person, sometimes love can be something that's kind of pulled out of you. A lady sitting in the front row pulled love out of me a few years ago. I saw her, she was lovable, and it just ripped love out of me. I was like, how could you not love Rachel? She wasn't Rachel Dirks yet, but she was going to be. That's not how grace works. It wasn't that God saw something lovable, so he loved it at any point. It was that God's love wasn't pulled out, it was pushed out because he's gracious. And because he loves because he's inclined to love, and so he sets his love upon. When God created, that was an act of grace. There was nothing to actually love or be lovable. But God, abounding in love, said, I'm going to make, I'm going to create. That was an act of grace. When God gave the law, that was an act of love. That was an act of grace. The law is grace, even the bits you're confused by and don't like. When Jesus came, John's gospel tells us we've received grace on top of grace because God was already gracious. He just got more gracious. Grace is not a consolation love. Grace is the best kind of love. It's love that doesn't seek to find merit or anything like that. It's not based on what's fair. It's based on the inclination of the heart or, to be truthful to this passage, the inclination of the spirit within. And if that spirit is bound to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, what a wonderful people we will be. And so when we think about grace in our relationships, how it can change, think about grace in marriage. I met a young lady and she pulled love out of me because she's lovable. Most of the time. We promise in marriage for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And even when the person closest to you might be the source of your greatest pain. If we will all learn from the beginning and through the course of marriage, that most intimate of relationships, that it's grace. It's not so much that you're lovable, though praise the Lord our spouses are, but that our love comes because may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with our spirit and we are inclined to love you. In our friendships, may we not sing along with the theme song of my, ta- my favorite TV show, Friends, I'll be there for you because you're there for me too. That's a contract. That's not grace. I'll be there for you. Song ends here. song ends there it's not based on you it's based on me I'll be there for you I'll love you that kind of grace in hospitality that is the love of strangers and meeting people what if we just love them because we're inclined to love rather than love them based on how lovable they are you know I've heard about churches some people have done some work and they said you know everyone wants to come to a friendly church right everyone does But sooner or later, we look past friendly and look for friendship. See, friendly is, oh, wow, it's so great that you're here. 
I'm just going to say, I'm here every week, and if you greet me like that each time, it's just going to be weird. I'm here. Yes, I'm here. It's great. My alarm went off. Yay. Praise Jesus. But sooner or later, beyond the celebration comes the, will I step into friendship with you and love you? I'll be there for you, song ends, and mess up and dirty up my life with you and dirty up your life with me and we'll walk this journey together. That's where friendship sort of comes in, that level of commitment beyond the sugary, happy, so great that you're here. And so grace changes the way we do hospitality and friendship. It breaks us out of clicky spaces. And we've got to have friendship circles. But it opens us up to seeing people as more than just my you-to-me relationship and to go through Jesus and to welcome you as a koinonos, as a fellow. In disputes, how grace can change things, where I will think the best of you and offer you the best through the dispute. In the act of reconciling, and that's a whole further concept to explore, but what if we approach reconciling just with a, not based on what you deserve, but what is the best I can give you? What is the apology I can offer before it's demanded? What is the forgiveness I can offer before it's asked for? How can I graciously love you beyond your merit? Hey, imagine how grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ being bound to our spirit could change the way we do life together. There's what I think is an alarming thing that happens in our society today. When leaders of low capacity or big capacity, national level, when they make a mistake, what do we do? We call for their resignation. We get out the pitchforks and we say, they messed up, surely they must resign. We call for their resignation and you know what we do? We make it impossible, or almost impossible, for people to admit their faults. For people to say, I did wrong, because if you say I did wrong, then everyone says, and you should resign. Perhaps we could say, you should repent. Hey, we graciously, and grace doesn't say, ah, look, it doesn't matter that you did that. No, it, it, it does matter. It was wrong. And yet there can be a fresh start. Thank you, Mr. Leader, Mr. Person, for owning the mistake you made. Let's start again tomorrow and learn from this. Let's go forward. Let's not have a society that is devoid of grace and so bound on pitchfork justice that no one wants to admit when they're at fault or done something wrong. And worse still, when they're wrong is something particularly harmful, let's not encourage people to go underground and hide and mask things. But when the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is bound to our spirit, we can be a society that is open to share these things together. And so together... We pray that the grace of Christ might be with our spirit and that we would proceed with love that does not seek necessarily equity or fairness, but to discover every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus and the amazing grace that he has shown us, paying a debt that was not his, owning a problem that was not his, dying a death that wasn't his to die. Lord, by his grace, we now get to live a life.
that was not ours to live. We haven't just been rescued from the rubbish pile of spiritual orphanage to be slaves, but to be adopted into his family, co-heirs with Christ, called into his glorious riches. And so, Father, we do indeed pray that that kind of grace that Jesus has shown us, that that grace may be with our spirits, that we would be a changed people and a changed community as we participate in this fellowship together so that we might know all the good things we share. 